The second recorded sermon of Jesus closes by outlining the expectations for kingdom servants in Matthew 10, 24-42. He provides these expectations not as a source of discouragement, but as encouragement. Serving King Jesus is serious business, resulting in rejection, persecution, threats, and yes, even death. Nonetheless, serving Jesus is also a cause for rejoicing and will result in blessing. Previously, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 10 to 12, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Now because of their gravity, the expectations for kingdom servants are broken into two parts. Verses 24 through 31 and verses 32 through 42. In part 1, we saw the first three expectations were set forth and built around the command, Do not fear. Matthew 10.26, 10.28, 10.31. Hence, as kingdom servants, we should expect persecution, but ought not to fear our persecutors. We should expect the loss of life, but do not need to fear our executors. And finally, we saw that as kingdom servants, we should expect God's protection and ought not fear being worthless. Now in Matthew 10, 32 to 42, Jesus lays out the final expectations for kingdom servants. These final four expectations include two rewards. Kingdom servants should expect a reward for confessing Jesus' lordship. We should expect rejection from family. We should expect to sacrifice our lives for our king. And finally, we should expect a reward for faithfulness. So let's begin in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. Matthew 10, 32 to 33, sets forth that kingdom servants should expect a reward for confessing Jesus' lordship. Expect a reward for confessing Jesus' lordship. Let's read verse 32 and 33. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But... Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Notice we begin with the word therefore, un. It connects what Jesus is about to say regarding rewards to his previous admonishment. He revealed that as kingdom servants we would be rejected by the religious, the rulers, and even relatives. And as a result we will stand before the tribunals of the religious, we will stand before the courts of the rulers. And what we say or do with Jesus at those times will determine our reward or loss. Now the inclusive everyone, pas, refers to all who profess to be disciples or servants of Jesus. And the nature of Jesus' statement that he will confess those who confess him and deny those who deny him should cause any professed disciple to scrutinize themselves. We ought to examine ourselves, folks. Yes, there is a reward for service, but only genuine service. Disingenuine service will be cursed. And the means of determining whether our service is genuine or not boils down to whether we confess 
or deny Jesus' lordship. Notice what Jesus says. Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. Now the verb confesses, homologio, refers to publicly professing and identifying with someone or something. You see, servants, we are expected to confess Jesus. And what is it about Jesus that we are to confess? Paul explains in Romans 10, 9 to 10. If you confess, homologia, with your mouth, Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, homologia, resulting in salvation. Confessing Jesus, then, is professing and identifying with his lordship. One identifies with Jesus' lordship by submitting to him and living in obedience to his law. Ultimately, this confession reflects the genuine belief or faith that's in one's heart. And sadly, outward confession can often be nothing more than ritualistic or going through the motions. Thus, Jesus codifies this confession. Remember that Jesus says, Everyone who confesses me before men. The phrase before men refers to the religious rulers and relatives. Genuine kingdom servants will publicly declare his lordship in both word and deed before all. Before all religious leaders, before all rulers, before all relatives. You see, when Peter and John stood before the Sanhedrin and were commanded to stop preaching Jesus, they responded in Acts 5.29, We must obey God rather than men. After being beaten, Peter and John, according to Acts 5.42, kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Believers, I challenge you to examine yourself. Are you confessing Jesus as Lord in both word and deed? When you're gathered with unbelievers on the job, when you're in school, or you're at a social function, examine yourself as to whether you're confessing Jesus' Lordship or if you're keeping silent. Are you willing to speak up and speak out for Jesus? Are you staying loyal to Him? Or are you going along with the crowd and joining them in their sin? How many professed believers, how many of you are silent because of embarrassment or ridicule? Be assured, my friend, that if you cannot confess Jesus in familiar situations, then you will not confess him when you stand before the judgment of the religious or the rulers. Now, those who confess Jesus will be rewarded. He says, I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. Even when it is difficult, those who confess Jesus' lordship are assured that they will be rewarded. Jesus, in turn, will confess homologia. He will confess them. That is, he will declare them as justified before God's tribunal. John explains in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess homologia, his name before my father and before his angels. Now this tribunal is known as the Bema Seat or the Judgment Seat of Christ. It will occur after the rapture of the church when all Christians, living and dead, will be caught up to heaven. Paul declares in Romans 14, 10 and 12, we will all stand before the Judgment Seat of God so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. He also says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, 
whether good or bad. You see, my friends, every word and work that you have done since salvation will be weighed on the scale of justice. If your words and works have been said and done for God's glory, you'll be rewarded. While those things you've done not for God's glory will be burned up and unrewarded. Again, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13 to 15, Each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built up on it remains, he'll receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. Now, while there are rewards for confessing Jesus and his lordship, there are curses for those who deny him. Jesus says, whoever denies, arneomai, whoever denies me before men, I will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. The verb denies, arneomai, refers to a refusal to acknowledge someone. Contextually, the phrase, whoever denies me, is ultimately a refusal to acknowledge Christ as one's own and is better rendered as disowned. Now this denial or this disowning is equivalent of denying the lordship of Christ. Dr. John MacArthur elaborates. He says this describes a soul-damning denial of Christ. Not the sort of temporary wavering Peter was guilty of, but the sin of those who through fear, shame, neglect, delay, or love of the world reject all evidence and revelation and decline to confess Christ as Savior and King until it is too late. Now because of the nature of this denial, it's necessary for us to develop a theology of denial. A theology of denial. Now biblically, there are two types of denial. Permanent denial and temporary denial. Now, permanent denial describes those who persistently deny the lordship of Christ. An apostate is an example of permanent denial. According to the book of Jude, apostates are, quote, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ, Jude 4. Paul warns Titus, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Furthermore, permanent denial exhibits an antichrist-like spirit and demonstrates a lack of salvation. The Apostle John declares in 1 John 2, 22-23, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father, the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Now let me set forth to you Judas Iscariot. You see, Judas Iscariot is an example of permanent denial. He denied Jesus' lordship in his words and works. He betrayed Jesus and led the guards to arrest him. Matthew records that Judas later felt remorse over his denial. However, remorse metamelomai is nothing more than sorrow without repentance. Paul declares the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance, metanoia, without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world 
produces death. 2 Corinthians 7.10. You see, Judas exhibited sorrow, yes, but no genuine repentance. On the other hand, we have temporary denial. Now, temporary denial describes those true believers, perhaps even you, who suffer from momentary weakness or faithfulness. Now, this type of denial is not perpetual nor permanent. Further, it always is followed by genuine repentance. And again, all believers, every one of us, are capable of temporary denial. Again, we need only to look at Peter, who denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. Now, there's no doubt that Peter experienced a heart change that brought forth the fruit of genuine repentance. According to Luke twenty-two sixty-two, Peter went out and wept bitterly following his denials. But 50 plus days later, Peter, along with John, was commanded by the Sanhedrin to stop preaching Jesus. And Peter responded in Acts 5, 29, we must obey God rather than man. The Sanhedrin in turn flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, Acts 5, 40. After being beaten, Peter and John left rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day, they kept right on teaching and preaching, preaching Jesus as the Christ. Acts 5, 41-42. You see, believer, you may be guilty of a temporary denial of Jesus. And if you are guilty of, his, of a denial of him or of his lordship, I would challenge you, uh, not in fact, I would exhort you to immediately repent, lest what is thought to be temporary becomes a permanent denial. So when Jesus says, whoever denies me, he's referring to those guilty of permanent denial. Contextually, their denial of Jesus occurs before the tribunals of the religious and the courts of the rulers. They refuse to confess Jesus as their Lord and Master. And their lack of confession or denial is not transient, nor is it momentary. And as a result, Jesus says, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Now, Jesus' denial occurs in heaven before the Father at the great white throne, judgment. Previously in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addressed this issue. And he said in Matthew 7, 22-23, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, these individuals call Jesus Lord, say words and do works in his name. And nonetheless, he denies them entrance into heaven. He casts them into the lake of fire. And his judgment against them is their lawlessness, their disobedience to his law. See, if their confession of his lordship had been genuine, they would have obeyed his law. And so I say to each of you, beware of denying Jesus' lordship. So we can expect a reward for confessing Jesus' lordship. Now in Matthew 10, verses 34 to 37, it sets forth that kingdom servants should expect a rejection from family. Expect rejection from family. Let's read verses 34 to 37. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Again, notice what Jesus says. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. Now Paul explains in Ephesians 4.17 that the sword is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Like a sword, God's Word can bring peace, but it also brings judgment and division. Jesus preached God's Word, beginning with the Gospel. Indeed, the Gospel is a message of peace, peace with God. Nonetheless, the gospel and God's word are a source of contention in this world. One needs only consider the response of people when biblical morals are seemingly upheld. Recently, the Supreme Court overturned Roe and Casey. They stated the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. Roe and Casey are overruled, and the authority to regulate abortion is returned to the people and their elected representatives. Now, the decision of that court was not that abortion was immoral but that it was an issue that the people and their representatives should decide. Immediately, though, there was a great uproar from those in favor of abortion against so-called Christian extremists. And according to them, a Christian extremist is anyone who views abortion as the murder of a life created in the image and likeness of God. Now, based on Jesus' statement, the amount of visceral that's being aimed currently at Christianity and the scriptures should not be surprising. To make his point, Jesus quotes Micah 7, 6. To set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Now in that context, Micah laments the familial disloyalty and infighting within the kingdoms of Judah and Israel. And while Micah's statement depicted the current situation of his day, it was also prophetic. Jewish interpreters apply this prophecy to the tribulation that will precede the Messiah's coming. Consequently, families will be torn apart and opposed to one another during the tribulation. Aware of the rabbinic view of this prophecy, Jesus says that this domestic opposition is not waiting for the tribulation to begin. The Messiah's first advent has initiated it. Jesus says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now the verb love there, phileo, sometimes rendered as brotherly love, familial love, means to have loyalty to another. The corollary passage, Luke 14, 26 says, if anyone, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brother and sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now in that verse, Luke 14, 26, the verb hate, meseo, is a Semitic idiom meaning to love less than another. Jesus' point is that service to his kingdom takes precedent over everything, including our family, if necessary. Kingdom servants, we must be more loyal to King Jesus and love him more than our own families. Now, you may view that statement as radical, but my friends, this is nothing more than the proper application of God's law. Deuteronomy 13, 6-9 commands, If your brother, your mother's son, or your son or daughter, or the wife you cherish, or your friend who is as your own soul, entices you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods. You shall not yield to him, or listen to him, and your eyes shall not pity him, nor shall you spare or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. Now let me show you the application of this verse. Coming down from Mount Sinai, Moses saw the rebellion and idolatry of the people. 
and he commands the Levites in Exodus 32, verse 27. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp and kill every man his brother, every man his friend, every man his neighbor. After their execution of 3,000 idolatrous rebels, Moses says in Exodus 32 and 29, Dedicate yourselves today to the Lord. For every man has been against his son and against his brother in order that he may bestow a blessing upon you, that is, God bestow a blessing upon you today. You see, what the Levites recognize is that they cannot be neutral between good and evil because they're God's servants. When God commanded them to wield the sword of his judgment, submission to Yahweh superseded their familiar relations. And friends, just like the Levites... You and I as kingdom servants must wield the sword to preserve God's honor. Now, it's not a physical sword like it was then. We wield a different sword. That sword is the gospel and God's word. And sometimes in wielding that sword of the gospel, the sword of God's word, we have to wield it against our own family members. If your family member engages in apostasy or immorality, you have to be faithful to your king. That means that on some level there may be a confrontation with that apostasy or immorality. And when a confrontation occurs, do not be governed by feelings or emotions. Yes, they'll be there. Yes, you're going to have to fight against them. But you have to be governed by God's law. Loyalty to your king. Furthermore, do not give your opinion. Everybody has one. Simply declare God's word. For example, if a family member or friend wants an abortion, kingdom servant, you must not agree with that. Furthermore, you cannot remain silent about it. You must lovingly and gently confront them with God's word. If a family member comes out as gay, lesbian, or transgender, we can't stop loving them. But we also cannot remain silent and go along with their immorality. And furthermore, Christian, you've got no business attending a gay, lesbian, transgender wedding. God calls it an abomination, and your attendance would be nothing more than support and approval of that abomination. Now, kingdom servant, friends, believers, when you stand for what is biblically correct, and biblically moral, you're going to need to know this. Expect rejection from your families. Will it be difficult? Yes. Yes, it will. Will it result in hurt feelings? Yes. Yes, it will. Will it sever the relationship? Yes, it may. Rejection, however, should not stop you and me from standing for what is biblical. Do not be deceived by emotional manipulation techniques such as, well, if you do not approve of me or what I'm doing, you're no longer my family. Okay, that's your choice. But don't fall for it. Don't be manipulated by it. When you're faced with a choice between being loyal to family or loyal to Jesus, you make sure Jesus takes the priority. Expect rejection. From your family. 
Now Matthew 10, 38-39 sets forth that kingdom servants should expect to sacrifice their lives for Jesus. Expect to sacrifice your life for Jesus. Let's read verse 38 and 39. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Now we just saw that we have to love Jesus more than our families. And now we need to love Jesus more than our own lives. Jesus plainly states, He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. The corollary passage, Luke 9.23 says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That verb deny, our neomai, in Luke 9.23, means to renounce or disown. Kingdom servants, we are expected to renounce our old ways of life. According to John D. Grasmick, to deny oneself means this, turning away from the idolatry of self-centeredness and every attempt to orient one's life by the dictates of self-interest. To deny yourself means that you and I must give up control of our lives and give control to King Jesus. Furthermore, Paul instructed Timothy to deny ungodliness and worldly desires is to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, Titus 2, 11-12. The cross, a wooden structure used to execute criminals. In the Roman world of the first century AD, the phrase take his cross meant to carry the mechanism of one's death to the site of his execution. A modern equivalent would be like telling someone, sit in an electric chair. Not a pleasant thought at all. Carrying one's cross does not mean dealing with irritating people, nor does it mean having to put up with inconvenient situations. Instead, it means dying to all selfish, sinful desires. Kingdom servants, you and I must put to death immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry, Colossians 3.3. This is what Luke means by bearing our cross, and it's a daily process. Every day, believer, you and I are to be putting to death the deeds of the body, Romans 8.13. And then follow, that verb follow, akalutheo, means to walk behind, to go where someone else is going, to do what they do. According to Frederick Louis Godet, the church of the true disciple directs him to renounce every path of his own choosing, that he may put his feet into the print of his leader's footsteps. Hence, follow after involves laying aside down all our individual rights and submitting to Jesus' commands. Friend, if you're living for yourself, you're not living for Jesus. To live for Jesus, we must sacrifice our lives. We must yield control of our life daily, put selfish, sinful desires to death, lay aside our rights, and submit to Jesus' lordship. Again, Dr. MacArthur states very succinctly, Becoming a Christian requires affirming the lordship of Christ to the point where you are willing to forsake everything else. Salvation is by faith alone apart from any works at all. But faith that is genuine will be manifested in a commitment that cannot be swayed by any influence. Further, Jesus says that those who will not sacrifice their lives for him are not worthy of him. Now that term worthy, axios, means weighty. refers to being recognized as respectable or valuable. In other words, Jesus says here that if you will not sacrifice your life for him, you have no value to him. Now he clarifies what it means to have no value. 
He who has found his life will lose it. That phrase, found his life, means he who pursues selfish desires. He will lose. Apolumi. He will perish. That's a judicial term for eternal death. Hence, the individual who places their desire above Jesus will be disappointed. Friend, if you place your desires above Jesus, I've got news for you, you are going to be disappointed. You can claim to be saved. You can claim to be a disciple. You can claim to serve Jesus. Regardless, if you do not sacrifice your selfish desires for Jesus' sake, you will achieve nothing, you will lose everything, and in the end you will perish for all eternity in the lake of fire. Luke 17, 32-33 says, Remember Lot's life. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. Those angels dragged Lot's wife out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in a moment it appeared she had been redeemed. Sadly though, she looked back to those damned cities. She could not let go of her old life. And at that very moment, she was vaporized into a pile of salt. Sadly, she tried like so many to hold on to her own life. And in an instant, she woke up in hell to await the day of judgment. Her fate will be the fate of many, perhaps even some of you, who seemingly claim to be redeemed, but have not left behind their old life. On the other hand, Jesus says, He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Now, the phrase, lost his life, refers to the sacrifice of selfish pleasure. The person who willingly and readily sacrifices their life and desires for Jesus' sake will have life. And it's not just any life, it's eternal life. You say, what is eternal life? Well, it's not just living forever. According to Jesus, this is the eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. John 17, 3. Eternal life is knowing God and His Son. That Greek term, gnosko, translated as know, conveys a sense of experiential knowledge. The translators of the Septuagint use gnosko to render the Hebrew term yada, which refers to sexual intimacy or the union between a husband and a wife. Hence, eternal life is not only ongoing life, but it involves having a personal, intimate union and relationship with God. So we ought to expect to sacrifice our lives for Jesus. Now Matthew 10, 40-42 sets forth our final expectation. Kingdom servants should expect a reward for faithful service. Expect a reward for faithful service. Let's read verses 40 and 42. He who receives you, receives me. And he who receives me, receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of the prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Notice Jesus says, he who receives you receives me. Now his statement reflects Jewish tradition. According to the Mishnah Barakoth 5.5, a man's appointed agent is in his stead. In other words, the person's agent has the same legal status as the one who appointed him. 
Hence, anyone sent by Jesus is sent with his authority. When they speak, it is as if Jesus himself is speaking. Now, the verb receives, decamai, means accepting or welcoming someone into one's house or company. Back in verses 12 and 14 of Matthew 10, Jesus says, As you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. You see, as the disciples went from house to house preaching the gospel, if they were received or welcomed into the house, they were to bestow a blessing upon it. If they were not received into the house, they were to bestow a curse upon it. Now Jesus explains that receiving or welcoming his servant into one's home is the equivalent of welcoming him. Therefore, those who reject his servants are, in essence, rejecting him. Next, Jesus adds a caveat. He who receives me receives him who sent me. Note that just as Jesus sends his servants, so he was also sent, apostolo. And who was it that sent Jesus? His Father sent him. John says in 1 John 4, 14, We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Because the Father sent the Son, the Son is endowed with his authority. When the Son speaks, it is as if the Father is speaking. Therefore, to welcome Jesus' servant into one's home is not only to welcome Jesus, but to welcome his Father. Let's put it another way. As you treat God's servant, so you treat God who sent them. Moses said to the Israelites, Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. Exodus 16.8 Responding to the Israelites' desire for a king similar to the pagans, Yahweh comforted Samuel. They've not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Now in verse 41, Jesus employs the rules of Hebrew parallelism when speaking to the disciples. Hence, line A, he who receives a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward, is parallel to line B. He who receives a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. In other words, the prophet and the righteous man are used interchangeably for the same person. Here, Jesus uses the prophet and the righteous man to describe his servants. Now, what does it mean to be a prophet or a righteous man? Well, a prophet, prophetes, is Yahweh's ambassador declaring his message and judgments. A righteous man... Dikaios describes someone who lives according to God's law. That kingdom servants, you and I are prophets, implies that we are ambassadors. Indeed, Paul declares we are ambassadors for Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.20. As ambassadors for Christ, we must declare his message and judgments. And as righteous persons, you and I are to live under our king's law. If you're preaching the righteousness of Christ, you ought to be expected to live righteously. Jesus promises that those who receive Decomai, or welcome the king's servants, will receive a prophet or righteous man's reward. Now this second verb translated as received, lambano, receive a prophet's reward, means to come into possession of something. Those who welcome, those who treat well, those who accept Jesus' servants will come to possess a reward, misthos, or pay for their service. Just as the prophet or the righteous person is rewarded for the service to God, God will also reward those who serve God's other servants. Let me drive home the point. Whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. That phrase, little ones, mikras, 
term of endearment that Jesus places upon his disciples. Providing somebody with a cup of cold water to drink was the most basic, essential act of hospitality in the Middle East. As such, it was often unappreciated and unrewarded. However, Jesus says even the most basic act of hospitality done in service to another of his servants, his little ones, will be rewarded. Let me give you an example. 1 Kings 17. The widow of Zarephath welcomed Elijah into her home. Though she had little to feed her and her own son, she served God by caring for and providing for Elijah, God's servant. God rewarded his servant Elijah with protection and food during the drought. He also rewarded the widow with an inexhaustible supply of flour and oil for the remainder of the drought. Jesus rewards, my friends, he rewards the faithful service of all his servants, whether they're serving publicly or privately, regardless of the greatness or insignificance of their service. Kingdom servants can expect, you can expect, to be rewarded for faithful service. Friends, listen, modern Christianity has lost the reality of kingdom service. But friends, as kingdom servants, you have been commissioned by your king to serve him. You have been granted his authority to serve. He has set forth the task. He has provided you various service guidelines. And he has also delineated the expectations he has for us. Furthermore, he is going to evaluate the service of each and every one of us. And his evaluation is going to serve as the basis for our eternal rewards. Paul explained to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3, 12-15. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it, because it is to be rewarded with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality, the cost of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer a loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Again, 1 Corinthians 3, 12-15. In other words, how you serve Jesus in this life determines how you will be rewarded in the life to come. Friend, before it is too late, examine your works. Those deeds done genuinely in service to Jesus will be counted by him as gold, silver, and precious stone. But those deeds you've done for personal gratification and glory are going to be counted by Jesus as wood, hay, and straw. Every one of us as servants, our works will be tested by fire at the Bema seat. And only those works, those deeds that survive the purge, the gold, the silver, the precious jewels will be worthy of reward. How many, and I tremble to ask this, how many of us will have little to no reward in heaven? My friends, knowing the amount of eternal reward is dependent upon the deeds we do in this life. May we as kingdom servants go forth and let us wholeheartedly serve King Jesus. Let's pray. Father, Sovereign One, we approach you through our King, our Lord Jesus. We praise you. We lift you up for sending your Son to redeem us, to be his servants. We praise you for adopting us as your sons and daughters. But Lord, we need you. We need you to equip us through your Spirit to be faithful servants. Help us to be faithful even when facing rejection from our families. And Lord, forgive us for when we've been unfaithful, when we've remained silent, when we've denied Jesus' lordship, whether in word or work. 
Father, keep us from ourselves. Keep us from sin. Keep us from the evil one. Until that day, your kingdom arrives on earth. May you continue to receive our service and our praise. Amen.